Hey, Lucretia, how are you doing? Hey. Hey there, lady. I'm, I'm here at the office, so I'll be muted and I'll jump in with her. Okay, sounds good. All right. How you doing? Good to see you. Good to see you. It's good I'm to be good. seen. <laughs> yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. It's good to see you, too. Uh, you going to be driving in the mirror? Carrie's driving. Say hey. Oh, okay. Hi, Carrie. Here's good Marcia. Uh, hey, Marjana. And um, I think... Uh, I'm trying to, how do I bring in the next person? Hello. Hello. Hey, Margina, how are you? I'm fine. You okay? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to get, trying to I couldn't hardly hear you on. I was going, what's wrong? I think I got it. See, I'm waiting on one other person. <clears throat> okay, I thought she had... I'll give it two more minutes, Margina. Okay. Hi, Danielle. Can you hear me? Hey, Danielle, can you hear me? I can. I can. Okay, good. Hold on. And I am doing the very same thing that you're doing. It's better. And I well, thank you guys for joining me for my podcast today. Um, I always get this part mixed up, so I, I always uh, rely on my editor to uh, do all the uh, intro and stuff. But my guest host today is Lucretia Johnson. Everybody say hi to Lucretia. Hello, everyone. Hi, Lucretia. Hello. Welcome. And um, my guest today for our topic on uh, United States Indigenous Women and the state of United States Indigenous Women is Danielle Lanier Cooper. Did I got, got that right? Danielle Cooper? Uh, Lanier is uh, fine, Lanier Danielle Lanier. Say that again. Danielle Lanier. Okay. So my guest today is Danielle Lanier and Margina Birch. And uh, we'll start with Margina. You can introduce yourself. Um, if you can tell us your affiliation and uh, give us a little background and then we'll have uh, Danielle. Okay, hello everybody. Uh, my name is Margina Burge and I am, um, 
I am a citizen of the Comanche Nation. I work at Tarrant County College where I've been for 11 years. I work with an intercultural network program here. So work with our diverse student body in this, but my education and background, um, I traveled, I'm from Texas, but I traveled to Kansas to attend Haskell Nation, Haskell Indian Nations University because I wanted to be immersed in my uh, traditional native environment um, because we were sort of disconnected when we were younger. Um, so I did that and I went on and completed my master's at KU in Global Indigenous Nations Studies with an emphasis in peace and conflict and working on my PhD now in sociology and one more class after this semester to finish all my coursework. So um, that's a little bit about who I am and where I come from. Thank you, Margina. Danielle? Hello and welcome everybody. I'm gonna go ahead and turn the video on. Yes, I am driving, but I'm trying to drive me as safe as possible. I am Danielle Lanier. I, am, uh, I have a residence in between Texas and Oklahoma. I recently came off of a congressional race for Oklahoma's congressional district two. And obviously we still have down ballot voting. So that played a huge role in that, but I'm deeply involved in politics. My day job, as I like to term it, is healthcare. I am a trainer for Baylor Scott and White. Before that, I was a trainer for United Healthcare. I'm also kids and a dog named Duchess. <laughs> I'm married and uh, in my leisure, I do consulting. I have my own uh, company. It's called More Than a Click. And mainly I uh, try to help out where I can with diversity and inclusion issues. I uh, volunteer occasionally for helping battered women or with women's shelters with being able to help ladies get back on their feet with doing a resume or putting together an outfit or just doing like a mock. So uh, my commitment to community, it, it runs really And doing all of this, I went back to my original passion, which was writing. Ducktails, which is why I kind of told you guys representation matters and our dog duchess like before her i hadn't had a dog since maybe i was six uh, but the way she is with our family i feel like there's space for a, a story being told through the eyes of a dog with a black family with a, a son that has dreads with a daughter with an afro with a dad that is just a mailman, a regular a regular person with a mom that uh, is training her to be a service dog. I think, again, just kind of making sure that we're expanding the market is huge for me, which is why I definitely wanted to, to join this group to get some ideas, meet great people. And that's what kind of brings me um, to the center of this. Now to kind of circle back, being that it's supposed to be for indigenous people, is I am a Cherokee citizen by birth, not a freedman, not that anything's wrong with that. But during my campaign for Congress in Oklahoma, that was always questioned. You know, when you don't look 
and I, I'm not even sure what that is supposed to mean, but when you don't look the part of a Native American, you're constantly questioned, you know, and that has to change. Times are changing. Indigenous people exist in all manners, whether we're talking about uh, MMRW, which is a murdered and missing Indigenous women, is that we've even expanded that cause out to murdered and missing indigenous people because there are kids that are involved in it there are men that get trafficked there are boys that get trafficked so uh the latest thing that has have come out of the oklahoma legislature is that ida's law which uh i've actually worked with the niece of the lady named ida that this bill is written behind her aunt came up missing she went to go check the mail and was never heard from again you know, so when we're talking about that, we're talking about, um, you know, working near the pipeline where a lot of these girls and women were trafficked and even closer to home. We know that there is a huge level of black girls that are missing that nobody's looking for. Well, hold so, on one so, second, Danielle. Okay. <laughs> the politician in, in you is coming out. Um, and you know so. it is. <laughs> You want me to talk you know i'm gonna go <laughs> no not yet hold on one second we're gonna get there we're gonna get there uh because today we are talking about three topics and so um i wanted to give uh, an overview um and also i wanted to hear from margina on that specific topic about uh missing uh the violence against uh indigenous women and talk about um the the state of the reauthorization bill uh, the reauthorization bill for violence against women, which was uh, passed in the House in 2019, but is sitting right now with no action. And I feel like this is actually a great time for us to have this discussion um, because there's the potential to um, have some political uh, movement and give some voice and lend our support. And, and I want people to be able to do that um, by hearing um, from Marjina and yourself on what the experience is, like what is it for real? Um, what is it like today to be a native and you occupy a space that we refer to as stolen land, but the community is disenfranchised. Uh, one of the startling facts about the current state of indigenous women is the inability to bring uh, justice. They can't even bring their, um, uh, the perpetrators to court. And so I wanted, uh, Marjana, can you give some insight into the um, organization and st uh, structure uh, uh, when there's a crime committed against um, a native and uh, or when a crime is committed on native land, how that plays out, how does that work? Okay, um, I hope I can address this. And, and again, uh, my, my knowledge is gonna be limited on the extent of where the bill is and, and what's going on. Oh, you don't have to talk on the bill. I'll, I'll, okay. I'll talk on that. I really just okay. wanted, um, to background from a personal level, whatever your personal experience is and your personal knowledge, that's fine. 
Okay, I, I just, I did one of the research papers I did in, in one of my classes, uh, sociology of crime. Um, I, I did some research in that area. So I looked a little bit more in depth about the, um, a lot of it comes from jurisdictional issues because the, um, the, okay, so tribal nations are sovereign and sometimes that's confusing to citizens in the US. They don't really understand what that means, but they do have, their power to um, uh, govern the people within that tribe. And we have elected officials and uh, we have some tribes have their own police forces, some have their own fire department and everything. So there is governmental oversight with the, tri with the tribal leaders. So it is a sovereign um, nation to nation relationship between tribes and the federal government. And then you also have the fact that uh, states are sovereign. So they also have that relationship with the federal government. And sometimes the relationships between the state and the tribes are um, not the best. Um, we do have some, for instance, in gaming, we have some com compacts with the state where they get revenue, but they also have some control and oversight because it's located within the state. So there's just a lot of jurisdictional issues when it comes to dealing between states and um, tribal and that relationship with federal. So you, when it, oh, Martina, that, that's an excellent point. Can you go a little bit into your understanding of what the, what, what is that jurisdictional um, tension? Where does it come from? What's the history of it? Well, there was, um, and I don't know the, the date in my head, but there was a, a major crimes act that was put into place because um, at one point tribes had the, the right to discipline or try their own citizens. And there was a major crime that was committed where someone uh, was killed um, within, the, within the tribal jurisdiction. And of course, tribal laws or the way that tribes handle stuff is sometimes really different than what states or the federal government would. Um, I did some research on that because the, Ch the Chickasaw Nation, there's some others that do that, but they have a, a restitutional process that's part of their court system where they take into factor um, the community and the impact on the community. So say someone kills um, someone's spouse and now that woman is left without, um, <laughs> that woman is left, sorry for the laughing, it was uh, <laughs> Kimmy's wonderful hairdo. Um, so the, I told the you spouse, this is a conversation among friends. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> So the, the woman is left without resources, especially if they have children in the home and everything. So the tribes will sometimes try to work it out where the community is not impacted after the sentencing is done. So they try to work it out by rest, restitution and they have peacemakers in their court and everything. Well, talk, talk a little when, bit more about that. What does that mean? Like what, how is that different? Like. That is a, how, how would the community be affected? Is it because the person who is convicted remains there or it's because right. they're taken out? Right. 
Okay. Right, because they, right. they work because like they, an arrangement within this peacemaking circle that they have as part. I mean, and, and, and now for the most part, it's done with minor crimes or minor legal things that happen and not major crimes. Because again, going back to the historical major crimes, the federal government stepped in. So what started the whole major crimes act was the tribe decided these they took a couple of people to an island because isolation was a part of the history of tribes. When someone hurt the community or they did something that would do damage, they were isolated or they were banned from the tribe. So in this Major Crimes Act, when all this happened, what they did was they took these two young men to an island and they left them there with nothing. They had to fend for themselves and um, figure out what they were going to eat, how they were going to protect themselves. And they would actually go and check on them and make sure, but this was a part of their tradition. And well, the federal government did not like it. They didn't think it was an appropriate way to handle something like that. And they changed, they created a, a law where when it was a major, major crime, they could step in and serve punishment. They would not allow the tribes to do it. So that's a historical thing that went on a long time ago, but it still impacts tribes today because, because tribes tribe don't have jurisdiction, jurisdiction over uh, non-tribal members. So that's what's a the rationale for not allowing. What what is the rationale for the United States government to strip them of the ability? to govern because it's almost like a state the states get to, to get to prosecute right. they get so why would they not give that same they, they it's a right it's a state's right but why are they treating the native community well first help me it's not a community what is it what how do i uh, correctly refer to this, to this concept of state for natives. Um, well, we have we have citizenship. So, like okay. for me, I'm a dual citizen, and for Danielle as well. You know, if you are a citizen of a tribal nation, you have dual citizenship because you. Okay, so it's referred to as a nation. Yes, yes, it's tribal nation. Okay, so it's a tribal nation, and is that land? Is that decided by? Uh, territory or is that decided by uh, something else? Well, there's a there's an intense process that a tribe has to go through in order to get federal recognition. There's still some today after all these years that are still fighting to get federal re recognition and some have state recognition, but there's a whole uh, list of things. I do a presentation. I go through all the, the items, but I can't remember them off the top of my head, but um, they have to go through that to prove they have to verify their citizenship and so like our tribe we have a monthly meeting and we go through anyone applying for citizenship and the only time someone that's not born it's sometimes they'll have open enrollment where like I was about to say so could I become a citizen um it's it's really hard for an adult to prove citizenship you know 
I mean, there's just questions about why were they never put on the rolls? Because like I was put on at birth, you know, so, and then we, like if we changed um, blood quantum limits, which we did when my children were like 17 or something uh -huh. like that, they lowered the blood quantum limit and quantum then they had open enrollment for a while for, for people to, to put, apply. Okay, right. So children. my listeners have no idea what blood quantum they have no idea what a blood quantum um, oh, limit okay. is. Could you briefly just describe that? And then we'll jump back to our original. Okay, so, and this is what my dissertation research is, I'm planning it to be on is the blood quantum, federal government blood quantum requirements and that the so social impact on tribes and indigenous people because of those federal blood quantum requirements. But, it, when it first began, when they did the Reorganization Act and they allocated um, land, like lands to tribal nations and they were able to base, uh, build their own citizenship, it was a, um, I think it began as everybody had to be at least a quarter of, of that blood. So, you know, they, they actually kind of measure it out by descendancy. And it can become really complicated. Like my sister was three quarters, and so she married someone white. So they have to factor that out by um, um, what fractions on what her children would be because they had someone that was uh, not Comanche that married. So anyway, it can become really complicated. And there are a lot of states that have um, adopted the rule of of um, lineage um, and Cherokee is one of those so anyone that can uh, provide documentation or prove and be connected that someone one of their ancestors was on the tribal row when they did the Indian Reorganization Act they can they can uh, connect back to that um, so, but our tribe is still at a, an eighth right now. So anyone below an eighth. So my grandchildren can't be on the roll. Why not? So, yeah. Why can't, so, they, why can't your children be on the roll? My children are, because they, they lowered the limit back when they were, you know, older teenagers. And it opened it up where I could uh, enroll them to be on the roll. But the blood quantum stops at an eight. So anyone below that cannot be on the tribal rows for the Comanche. Okay. Danielle, just out of curiosity, do you have a position on the, um, on the position of the federal government defining the rules for entry into the nation? Shouldn't, in my opinion, I would think that that would be dictated by the nation and said, here's our rules, please support them instead of the entity that has forced its colonial and imperialistic traditions upon the nation. Um, either one of you can speak to that and Lucretia, feel free to jump in anytime. She's exactly right with everything it that came about as the federal government, um, because the funding that comes into the nation is also dependent on some of that when when it comes to the tribes, 
there are still treaties in place that they still try to enforce that they still have to be, they still have to honor. So I hear everything she's saying. She's absolutely correct, especially with the Cherokee Nation. Uh, as we are speaking right now, there is a freedman woman by the name of Marilyn Bond that is running for tribal council. And there is an uproar as literally as we are speaking about whether she can run or not because she is a freedman. She is not by blood. And they are asking or they have um, reached out to like the, the Cherokee Nation even has its own Supreme Court. So with that, the Supreme Court can overrule a treaty. And it's just conflict going back and forth with that when you say you're sovereign, but you are not 100% sovereign because the federal government and the treaties that are still in place to this day still have, still are valid and still have to be honored in some way. So what would so, you call that sovereignty? Uh, delusional sovereignty or? Um, with limits. I, I think that would be kind of fair to say it, it has limits to it to, to a certain degree. And even like when she touched on it with the crime, McGirt uh, was able to come in and, and overrule that a certain part of Oklahoma shouldn't have jurisdiction on certain crimes that a person, a Native American commits. It should go to federal government and be, be taken up from there. The state wouldn't uh, oversee that. It would be more of a, of a federal government. So if you wanted to kind of look at it this way, Basically, the federal government is kind of the, the, the conservator of, of everything that happens within, with, within, within the nation. This seems they like it has implications. Um, Margina, feel free to jump in on this too. Uh, from my perspective, it feels like there's international implications here that this has to do with social control and maintaining uh, the United States maintaining, um, I guess, control over a potential foreign exist, you know, existence like, uh, within yeah, within the United States. Um, and I wanted to know how, if any, is there any international support, um, particularly around the current pandemic of violence against Native women? Um, I, I did want to add, for, for one thing, I'm trying to make sure I remember, I should have jotted down notes, but for one thing, um, tribes are considered domestic dependent nations. So there is a- What is federal, that? It's a federal responsibility to support and provide resources for tribal nations. That's where, why there is still some control because, and that's why there are still issues with um, tribal citizenship and, uh, you know, that, that, that whole thing with the freedmen and the Cherokee Nation is just, that could be a, a one in its own. I was attending Haskell when all that came up came into play and I'll just say it out right now. I felt like it was, there was racism at the bottom of that. Yes. I struggle with it, you know, um, but you know, they are their own sovereign nation and they can work through it. But, you know, like I had a student in my class that said, you know, I've lived 
you know, on tribal land my entire life. That's all I know. I'm probably more connected to this community and the people than some people that have their citizenship. He was he was black, you know, identified black in Cherokee. And he said, why should I not be a part of it? Because they changed their mind. And there's a lot of history behind what that was, that the freedmen became part of the community, but they were, it was kind of like it was forced on the Cherokee Nation. So some, you know, and this was like, again, when I was in school, in two, uh, 2006 or something when all of that started kind of blowing up and again. What, what you, okay help me again when you say freedmen because that was a question I had is that if you are of another race or ethnicity can you be considered a citizenship because of the mixed race but I, I but you answered that question partially with um, the blood uh, quantum rule and so yeah. When you, when you speak of freedmen, historically that's referred to uh, African-Americans after 18, uh, in the 18th was, century. It was freed slaves that-, that So we're referring, so freedmen in the 21st century is referring to the same category yes. of people? Yes. My and the, the, yes. Seminole, <laughs> the Seminole was another tribe that, um, that has a lot of history behind that too, because they also took in a lot of the freed slaves and they lived among them. But I don't know, and I've never heard that they've ever had any kind of changes or anything. So the, the freed slaves that became a part of the Seminole, my understanding is they're just, they're part of the tribe as well. But the freedmen issue is that they don't technically have any native blood. They are, freed slaves. They're not Native Americans. So that's where this issue has came about. But they still lived the life and lived among them, was part of the people, was part of the tribe. So theirs is more of it's a cultural connection that this was their, this was a part of who they were and how they've grown up. It's complicated. So it, okay, so it would be the equivalent to our issue of immigration law, where someone from say Mexico had their, their um, have, well, no, I won't even say that. I was just kind of thinking of our immigration law and how somebody may have been born here or, and their parents were illegal. And, but I, you know, that's an entangled question, but it's similar to me in terms of uh, theoretical functioning, operationalized that it seems like it's common for the federal government to have a lot of power and control yes. over who, the dominion aspect, mm -hmm. what it's land you occupy, what resources. It seems like it's a very paternal dependent relationship that the government has created. And I'll go back to, is there any international support for this and would this, how, how, what does that look like? Does that mean it could be a, a war? Does it look like they could gain, um, is there a reason or a strategy that has been considered where, you know, we strengthen in numbers by having more people occupied, not just our, um, our tribe, our nation, which is, in name is their land attached to it that they occupy? 
Yeah, and that's a, a that's sort of another complicated thing. I, I I honestly did not know this all of my life until I was going to Haskell and I took some federal Indian law classes and learned more about it. But um, tribal land and the the reservations, the land that they live on, they they do not hold title to that land. Say what? To the federal government. Yeah. So do they, they have to pay a leasing fee or something? No, it's a, they have the right to um, live there. I, they have mineral rights, which becomes complicated too with treaties. There's so much that's going on right now in that area because of pipelines and they're trying to do that's it. Good. And hold on to that because that will segue right into um, green criminology, which is our next topic. Yeah. Okay. okay. But the, the thing is, is they, they can put trust in, they had, they, they, anyone that had a reservation that's in trust with the federal government. So they, they have, um, possess, they have, again, the ability to live there and govern on there, but they don't hold the title. So, so they don't own. Right. Right. They don't own that land really. Uh, and then so they, can they, buy, they can buy future lands and put it in trust as well. So, because our tribe's doing that some now, but um, no, no, there's no taxes on any federal. So, uh, how does the federal government make money? Because, you know, that's part of the the relationship between the states and the federal government is that you pay state taxes, you pay local taxes. There's some type of way that the federal government gets money back. And so like with uh, Texas, California and Florida, and I think there's one more where they don't pay uh, state, you don't, they don't collect state taxes, but they pay, they pay federal taxes or they, um, um, they can lease the land, they pay for leasing land that's owned by the federal government. There's also land within each state that's um, may be owned by foreign entities. So you all may, Danielle, you or my Jane may know this or not, but that was that is something that I'm very interested in when it comes to understanding uh, this notion of green criminology, which uh, really is an emerging field in critical uh, criminology and sociology and economics and demogra demography that looks at the historical nature of the acquisition of land, um, not just in the United States, but abroad, and how that is managed and how that impacts the people who occupy that land. Um, now for uh, native people of the United States, um, we see it still occurring now, like here in Texas, where we're all suffering because of the role of the folks that are responsible for managing our electricity and water. And so Marjana, you know, like we have as individual citizens and um, I guess um, citizens of the state, we can bring a claim against those entities who um, by dereliction of duty and, um, you know, their fiduciary responsibility in managing the electricity and the impact that it had, we, we can file a claim against those entities. Is it your understanding, what is that relationship like for um, 
reservations, people who live on the reservation. Well, I don't know if you ever heard about the Cobell Lost lawsuit, but no, that, please talk that about that. Was, that to me was fascinating because um, Eloise Cobell, um, she had a relative that died, um, passed away, and um, um, she after after she had passed away and everything, Eloise Cobell got a a check in the mail. And it was just a really tiny, small check. And she didn't know what it was, but she didn't pay much attention until she got a couple of them. And then what she realized is she had no idea where this was coming from. So she started doing her research, trying to find out, asking people. And she found out a lot of people were getting these really small, tiny checks and nobody knew where they were coming from. So she she started investigating in or researching into it and she ended up getting an attorney and she found out that and it's called individual Indian accounts and it went through the BIA and so what they were doing is they had all these large pieces of land that was actually Indian land and and we'll say Indian native indigenous we'll interchange them I just wanted to throw that in there but um um, they would they would have these individual Indian accounts and um, they would get like pennies on the dollar for the leases on these lands. So these people were getting, you know, these teeny tiny little checks where these non-native people had massive amounts of land that they were living on, were, you know, whether they, what they, whatever they were doing with it and paying them penny on the dollar. So she fought this and she she sued the federal government, uh, the BIA, because of the, I actually think it was in the billions, billions of dollars that was uh, stolen from these people because they weren't getting what they deserved. She spent the rest of her life fighting that case. case. I think she won, she beat the federal government toward the end of her life, but I was so just it was so frustrating because I think that they might have settled for like three billion because what I had read is that the federal government said there's no way that we could uh, repay for all of this money that was lost it would break the federal government so you know people now today are still getting some of their little checks you know that for back pay that they lost and through this settlement act but it was just one of those blatant examples of how the federal government has continued to steal from native people, but they got these things set up that most people have no idea anything about it. So anyway, that was a long answer, I know, but um, it's a fascinating- No, it's a great answer. Please continue. If you can ever read a little bit about the Cobell lawsuit, you'll see what, what um, how that all transpired and how that happened. I did want to mention real quick though, before, and I, I know Danielle probably needs to have more time, but I'm talking so much, but um, 
is also the international a thing that you mentioned, I, I believe, because I was following it really closely, the Dakota Access Pipeline, because I was teaching a sociology class. So I would do everything I could digging because it wasn't out in the media. You didn't see it on TV or read about it. So I had to use Facebook for, for Native American groups or sites that I did, but I was really following it closely. But during that Dakota Access Pipeline fight in South Dakota, um, in South Dakota, um, the, they actually reached out to the international community. They went to the, um, they reached out to the uh, uh, United Nations because they felt like that they weren't being listened to. And if you've never heard anything about the whole Standing Rock incident, that is just, to me is one of the most blatant examples of corruption and greed and disregard for native people that I've seen in my lifetime because the, the pipeline, the people that the money and power behind that, they had uh, law enforcement, heavy law enforcement brought in from other places. They had the national guard brought in there. They, they had tanks and, pipe bombs that were thrown and the whole premise of that whole thing was a peaceful protest with prayer and dancing because they were trying to protect their sacred site and they had a treaty that protected that land um so at that during that thing because of the fact of how little disregard how little regard they had for their people and they went to the international community through that so that's one example in my lifetime that I've seen where they actually started reach, reaching out to the international co co uh, community to say, this is how we're being treated. We have a treaty here that's supposed to be the supreme law of the land, and they're treating us like this. So when uh, with with what does that support look like and what kind of. Um was it helpful and what are the implications when there is support can they can the united states be sanctioned or is there some other type danielle you may know that answer as a congressional um uh future leader honestly not really not unless you bring a lawsuit up or someone takes the cause up to um you know, carry the torch for that. And then when you start getting into that, it does break down to whether this is a state issue. Does this happen on or off the reservation? Is this a native person? Uh, is this a federal issue? Then you start getting into these uh, different entities. So who has jurisdiction over it? Okay. Yes. Because the way that our judicial system is set up, it represents individuals and not groups. That part. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, we need to have some, um, there, there's, that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> I feel like I need to start a podcast just on um, all things related to, and I'll use this interchangeably as well, United States, Indians, Native, Indigenous people and the issues surrounding it. Um, I would love to, do something like that. But Marjina, I wanted to ask you, in your experience, is what could a person like me do? And because I'm an outsider, how do I become an ally? How do I be, you know, can I ever work for 
and I'm thinking about my students who is, who is the audience here, how can they get involved? How can they be more supportive? Well, I would, I would go back to what you're doing right now. You know, I mean, I think that um, giving, giving people the opportunity to share, to share, you know, setting up those opportunities, uh, recognizing that, that uh, this isn't, this isn't something that many people have easy access to. So trying to find those people, um, and I can definitely be a connection. I'm actually thinking about um, with where I work, they started a diversity podcast and it's growing and more people are getting connected to, but they had one of my mentors on it this past week, uh, Professor Angelique Eaglewoman. Um, she was a visiting professor at KU. And I thought, you know, people are, are really hungry for that information. So I was thinking about trying to start a, a, some kind of a podcast where we, we do have those opportunities to hear from indigenous um, voices, educated or, you know, more connected to, to tribes because, because again, I, I tell people, you know, just a, a little bit background on me. My grandfather was part of the Indian boarding school. So what I interviewed, it was uh, the Indian boarding school era is where the federal government came up with this policy that what they could do is they couldn't really break down native people. They stuck together and they were communi communal. So they wanted to get it get at them by taking the, the children okay. and forcing them to quit speaking their language and you know taking all elements of anything indigenous or native away from them. So my and grandfather often, tricking the families into into letting the children go from my understanding of this, making them believe that it was a better situation for them. And in all actuality, uh, the children really suffered. Right. Right, yeah. Y'all keep going. Uh, so I, I um, interviewed my great aunt, which was my, my uh, grandfather's sister. He never spoke about it, but I interviewed her for a paper when I was attending Haskell and she talked a lot about it. And she said that, you know, they went to Fort Sill Indian School and she talked about how that she was whipped because she couldn't speak. She, she was trying to tell them she needed to go to the bathroom and, and she didn't know English, so she was telling them in Comanche, and she was whipped, and she was saying they were so mean there, and again, my grandfather never talked about it, but he wouldn't teach us the language, and he wouldn't talk about it at all, so there's so many people that have been impacted by that, that they've sort of lost that part of the, a piece of themselves through, okay. through what their grandparents went through, like my generation, um, so there's more trying to learn and return to that now, but the, you know they're just a huge, huge void within our people of those still dealing with those repercussions of what was done to them to try to, you know, told they were they savages and you know I mean so and they're gonna mask that and hide it and and, and for shame, uh, so it silenced the whole era it almost seems, and mm -hmm. and and so, uh, but the don't just keep bringing it, making it aware, uh, bringing awareness to it. Uh, that's what's going to help. And then to bring our youth uh, so they can fight and just know the history of what, what has happened. Right, 
And you know, I, I just, I just, um, you know, I, I finished my associates at TCC, and I was trying to decide what I wanted to go on to do my bachelor's. And of course, at that time, I was in management and nonprofit, and I thought, you know, I, honestly, I wasn't as concerned about getting some kind of a regular education. And when I found out about Haskell, I was like, I want to get, I want to learn more about my, the history of my people, and you know, continue to pursue a degree in that area. And I'll never regret what I, the path that I took because I was immersed in that native community. And I, there were people from all over the United States, from Hawaii and Alaska. And so it was a, it was an immersion experience in the native community. You know, the, the good and the bad that, you know, seeing a lot of the issues that, you know, alcoholism and, and, uh, you know, just so many things that, uh, you know, abuse, people in abuse. Yeah. I heard so many stories that were, were still going on of people that yes. were taken from their homes. It wasn't over, and this was in 2007, you know. So, you know, the stories have been silenced so much that just providing those venues and trying to, to learn more in that two years of my bachelor's and the two years of my master's, I, I still feel like I only touched the tip of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. I'm learning what I had dashed away really quick because I was looking for, for, for a quote. Um, I have this really great book. It's called the Indian frontier of the American West from 1846 to 1890. And mm -hmm. so when you were referring earlier to the um, boarding school, is it called the boarding school mo movement or is it the boarding school um, the boarding school era the, so. the boarding school era um there was uh in this book it had a quote from a young man who was attending the boarding school but he was being indoctrinated with these mm -hmm. values um and it was it took my breath away because this was in Texas, um, and he was with the Kiowas and Comanches. He's part of the, the Kiowas and Comanche tribe. I may have that wrong. I, I'm trying to follow through all of this. But the young boy said that he wanted to go to this boarding school because it would take out the Indian in him and replace it with the goodness of being a gentleman. Mm. I was taken aback uh, because I feel like that's what happens today, that we all become complicit and living up to these ideas about what it means to be a good person, what it means to be a contributing citizen, but it's not necessarily in our best interest to take on these values. And it's definitely not in celebration of our historical culture and heritage. And, uh, <laughs> I think of all of the topics that I have been studying, this to me is one of the most troubling. And I'll say that and circle back to our original uh, first question, which was on the status of um, 
women. And I just wanted to throw out some of the current stats. And that is um, number one, I, I do understand what you mean now about the obligation of the federal and state officials to protect native women and girls, but they're not, they're not. And so right now, uh, uh, the Census Bureau says that non-Indians compromise 76% of the population on tribal lands and 68% of the population in Alaska native villages. And that, um, let me get you the other stats because Danielle and I had talked about this offline and I wanted to bring this, I wanted to get her opinion online. Um, but, oh God, where, I just, I literally just lost the stats. It is an alarming rate of uh, um, rape, um, domestic violence, rape, uh, kidnapping and murder. And also of um, human trafficking. I had no idea. It says more than one in two, more than one in two have experienced sexual violence and more than four in five American Indian and Alaska Native women have experienced violence. So they getting hit in the head, they getting punched in the face and raped and being forced into whatever. And even, and, and they're missing. I think the other thing that is extremely alarming is these women are missing. These girls are missing and no one is saying anything. It's at pandemic proportions because their stats, they, they can't even, um, and this is from the Indian Law Resource Center. The statistics, they're saying, okay, that just defines the scale, but the problem is it doesn't, it doesn't tell you what the experience is. So we can say one and two, but what does that mean? That means that the four of us on this call, of the four of us on this call, three of us, would have experienced sexual violence. That's yeah. not okay. That, that, that's not okay. 10 times, these rates are 10 times higher than the entire rest of the United States. Yeah, and to, to add to that, something I heard recently, and, and it, it kind of goes back to when I watched the movie, Wind River. They had it on Netflix. I don't know if they still do. It, it sort of, it gives you a picture version of why some of that stuff is going on. But one of the things I heard about recently that they were really talking about was, was what they call man camps. And that's especially in your desolate areas in Alaska where they're doing drilling and um, anything they're doing like out, because what happens is they have what they call these man camps outside of really desolate areas, you know, where there's, where reservations are usually placed. So they, you know, for one thing, the, the resources and 
things are lacking for some of those people that live in those the reservation areas. So they may connect with those men that come from the man camps easier. And then that's where a lot of them are coming up missing. And it, it's just sometimes because of location where they're much more accessible to, to get them and take them and either rape them, uh, abuse them or murder them. And again, if you can ever watch the movie Wind River, it not only talks about how, you know, showing that concern about the man camps, but it also sort of highlights the jurisdictional issue where they're all fighting against each other, the FBI and the state and the tribes. And so you, you see kind of a snapshot version of what the real life scenario is on a much larger scale. Okay, so Wind River was made in 2017 and can be accessed um, on Amazon Prime and YouTube and other streaming services like Apple and Google. And uh, I appreciate that. Uh, that'll give an interpretation of what's going on, but it is an accessible way for people to become um, aware of the, uh, the is, now is this specific to the Wind River Indian Reservation? Yeah, well, yes. that one was, yeah, that was just applying to that. And of course, you know, some Native people say, I mean, you have to always remember that when Hollywood gets involved, right, right. You, know, you have to keep that in mind, but I still think it's a good, um, I think it's a good, you know, kind of snapshot to see why that that becomes a problem with okay. the conditions. Yeah, so it does illustrate the issue of the missing and murdered Indigenous women uh, crisis. Okay, so uh, Danielle, I want, did she drop off? Okay, no, she's still there. I wanted to you to talk to it as well because you and I have, have spoken on this issue because it's in Canada and the United States. Um, and it, it's just so troubling to me because yeah. I don't understand. First of all, it's so troubling to me because the federal government, the Republican party, and I'm, I am normally bipartisan, but I, when I looked and saw that it had passed the house, but that it was a partisan decision not to reallocate funding for the Violence Against Women Act. I do not okay. understand why every women's group in the country have not rallied around this. And I don't know if it's because there's some renegotiation to make sure that uh, Native women will receive better protection and better funding on this issue of missing and murdered indigenous women in the bill. I don't know, but I do think that this is a rallying point for even us on, the, on this uh, podcast to begin to say, number one, we're women. So you need uh, President Biden, uh, VP Kamala, y'all need to make sure you're looking out for us because VP Kamala, you're one of us. There's right. no reason that should be sitting still. And then two, um, it could be either one of us. And when a sister, a mother, 
is in trouble because in, and I believe that women share a, a unique bond of sisterhood that transcends um, these, you know, contrived social constructs of race, class, and now gender, because, you know, I, I say anybody who identifies as female is my sister. Okay. And as in, it de deserves protection. Like I go hard, like <laughs> Marcina knows, Lucretia goes, I go hard for, for women because we may be the most vulnerable, but, and folks try to take advantage of that. Right. But, but we occupy the space that keeps creation going. Without us, there is no more life. And so, okay, I'll stop because I just feel so passionately about this. And I, I guess I'm a little startled by the current state um, into the missing and murdered indigenous women and girls uh, movement. And it, I just wanted you to speak to what you are aware of and, and what's going on. You are right. It's not, I don't feel like it's getting the attention that it deserves uh, as women. And just as we were kind of expanding before, it's not just indigenous women or uh, in, indigenous people that's missing. It's black people that's missing. Every day, how many times this week have we gotten an Amber Alert or we've seen something on Facebook where there is somebody, some young lady, some young girl that's missing in some state? Um, I think that it, it comes to the core of it is that it's important for us to have people in key places that will help bring attention to these things that matter to us. Uh, it is important that uh, Deb Highland is confirmed by the Senate. You know, she, of course, would be the first Indigenous woman to hold this, this position. It's important for people that look like us and deal with the same things that we deal with to be in places of power, to have this seat at the table. And old white men are just not cutting it anymore. This is why we have to step up in our communities. This is why we have to uh, step up and take, a, take back our, our house district seats, our state Senate seats. The magic happens really at the state level. And then it is important for us to support the people that wanna go on to run at the federal level. If we want things to change, we have to be the change that we seek. Yes. And that's just really what that is. Yes. And, and when you say old white men at the table, and it's a shame that they are making the decisions about women. Uh, and we have let it happen for so long with a lot of that. Yes. And they don't care. If it's not about money, because when we talk about the pipeline, um, and I'm not going to go too deep into this part here, but the pipeline was shut down at the federal level because that who, that's who had control of it at the federal level being on tribal grounds. The federal government really has that. The, the state of North Dakota and the states that are involved in that, they don't have much of a say which is kind of where we're going into with the sovereignty. But there are people that are living there. There are issues that are taking place there. When you go back and you look at the state representatives, the first thing that uh, the guy that I ran against in Oklahoma said was, oh my God, we, we lost jobs. Okay, are there not any other jobs? I mean, is that, was that it for them? Is their whole career over? 
Never mind all these women that have come up missing. And part of what makes this difficult when we're talking about murdered and missing is that these people are missing. Bodies have not been found for the majority of them. They're still somewhere out there, you know? So when we have things like that, you can't really call it a murder, but obviously you know what it is. Um, and, and, you know, never mind we have that. Never mind that this is harmful to the environment. Never mind those things. You know, we, they're concerned about jobs. And I, I get that part. I understand jobs are important from the, the larger standpoint, but we have to have key people that have the same mindset as we do in positions of power. That's just really where it is. Thank you. Um, that's a very powerful statement. I think that it's uh, very helpful and practical. Um, I wanna wrap up our last few minutes together with, um, I don't even know how to call it. I, Margina, you may know the answer to this, but I read that in the um, culture of women, indigenous women, that women are regarded as adult at the age of 52. That's when you mature into your, um, you become a, a woman that you are fully, and I've read it in this book called The 13 Original Clan Mothers um, by Jamie Sams. And it's the ancient teachings of sisterhood. So it's very interesting that I just had this, made this, uh, you know, very passionate, um, you know, remark about sisterhood. And I literally had picked this book up yesterday and didn't know what it was about. And then I looked at it and I was like, hey, wait a second. And it talks about the different kind of clan mothers, and they refer to them as wisdom keeper, listening woman, weaves the web, becomes her vision, um, and goes on. And so they said it becomes her vision. You know, it takes a woman um, almost into her 50s to become mature enough to understand how to impart that wisdom and to understand her uh, spiritual responsibility to her clan, her tribe her children and her people. So I don't know if, if any of this is true because it looks like it's a white woman on the back. So, but, uh, and she doesn't, um, she doesn't identify with any nation. So I didn't, I wanted to get y'all's take on this. Um, I've, I've heard of her for a long time and I, I believe she's a little bit more new age type of writer okay. than, affiliated with and, and that's just something that is sometimes difficult to to you know weigh interpret about who is the who are the ones that are really passing on information from from their elders and who are those that are learning reading something and I don't know I, yeah, I don't wanna, well I, I will say that in her book there are no references like there's they, this is um, she says that it was inspired, um, but she, from uh, Sue Rulery, Bird Woman, um, and from reading and interacting with secondary materials, but she does not have, like this is not based on research or she just, there's no formalized reference to anything. Yeah, I, I think that's probably one of the most difficult things for, for me even being sort of 
in the tribe, but trying to do things authentically. And mm -hmm. because I wasn't raised traditional is to try to make sure that I'm getting information that, that, uh, is passed on from people because there are people and I, I try very hard not to be judgmental. So I'm, I'm sure there's very well-intentioned people out there that, uh, may try to write and again I, I've, I've read some of her stuff I've heard of her so I'm, I'm familiar with her but I don't know that I would consider her a a strong voice and I, I haven't heard that before that someone would have to be 52 I mean you know I know there's very uh strong um there's very strong teachings on elders and among many of the tribal nations that I'm familiar with and people that are more connected to their tribe and traditionalists, they place a huge emphasis on respect for our elders. And, um, I, you know, I, I just, again, it's hard for me to, to comment on that because I've never heard of it. And it's not someone that would be a go-to person that I would, uh, I would be looking at it, but. I agree. I also would like to preface this with, you know, I am as a social scientist, as a scientist, as a researcher and an investigator, I am mindful to make sure that I'm, and, and I feel like maybe I might be doing that right now, is to use white logic and white methods, um, the traditional racist embedded metho methodology that we use to determine, um, to assess and qualify and confirm, uh, you know, whether something is legitimate. So, you know, in, in some ways I probably need to apologize to all of you all and to my listeners because I just caught myself slipping. Um, I use the same standards of white logic and white methods to determine whether somebody's um, creative or um, help material is authentic. And so, she may have been divine, divinely inspired uh, because the information is, is very helpful. So, um, you know, and it's all about the concept that we were just talking about, which is sisterhood that transcends boundaries. And so for that, I would say, I don't want to discredit her. Um, I do want to raise awareness about it. I thought it was a great text. Um, and then self-correct, and, 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 which is what this podcast is about is uh, speaking to the enduring um, position of humanity, particularly women, particularly women of color. Um, and I don't know if it's appropriate, but I would extend that to the just enduring um, nature of um, our sisters that are going through right now in native communities uh, with non-natives and natives. Um, it's just horrific and I deeply, deeply want to uh, do something to disrupt the experience that they're having. No one should have to wash, let me rephrase. Everyone is entitled to live safely and freely. It is what this country is built on, is what the world is built on. And that um, is the right to live and live safely and live freely. So we'll end with, uh, this question to you both. What is the question you wish I asked that you would like to answer? And it can be on any topic. 
Marjina, we'll go with you and close out with uh, I was trying uh, to Lucretia. I was trying to think of something that that I wish you would have asked her, but I, I think that you know there's just to to say it in a nutshell, there's there's so much information that it's not possible to <laughs> to cover the many things that I wish that more people in this country knew. Um, I, I would like to leave with this request that people try to remember when they're talking about the diversity of this country, to remember Native people. I, I say this in the presentations I did, um, and I'll just say this without hesitation. I love Obama, the Obamas. It is a highlight of my life that we elected a black president and I was on the, the grounds of the, uh, the mall um, when he was inaugurated the first time as a starving student. I found a way to get there because I knew it was historical, but that man never let Native American, he never left us out of the, the conversation. He made the first tribal summit in history and brought tribal leaders. He was consistent in remembering us. And I know there's a lot of diversity among our people, I mean, in our country, and there's no way probably that someone can mention everybody, but native people were the original inhabitants yes. of this land. And I think we deserve to be mentioned when we talk about diversity. And it's because we're not mentioned and we're not brought toward public acknowledgement in this country often enough that we are considered the invisible minority. So that's my thing I would like to leave for educators, for people going into the field of teaching or you know leadership roles is to remember the original inhabitants of this land when you're talking about diversity. And my thought on this is, and I've been rather quiet, I've been working as well as listening. But my thought on this is that the nerve of the federal government to insinuate itself in every aspect of our lives, especially in cases such as this, it's almost like they have their foot on your neck just to, you, it's like you're, just to keep you down just enough to need them. And that's what saddens me as far as our Native Americans. But then as women, we are the dispensable, indispensable ones. We are the first ones who uh, is left behind. I mean, we're, but we are the ones who are, we are the creators. We are the people who create the world. And, uh, and it's very sad to me that, uh, that we, our voices are always often the last heard and that we are left out the way we are and treated that way. So we need to do better. Our government needs to do better. Danielle, you there? Is she there? Danielle. Hold on, let me try to call her real quick. No, I'm here. I couldn't get off mute. Sorry. Okay. Um, if I had to add anything or the question I wish um, 
you or really we could have asked is what more can we do from from where we are? How can we be the change? You know, I, I agree with everything everybody said. You know, when you zoom out with this issue, it comes really comes down to uh, once again, people being neglected. Native American uh, history is still history. You know, and we've had our history stolen just like anybody else that wasn't a Caucasian that came to this land. And yet, and still, the issues of yesterday still affect us today. Yes. You know, and, and once I really started getting more into my heritage as, as a Cherokee Black woman, I, I realized that, yes, uh, racism runs rampant in, in everything. And that's a topic of a different day, you know, but it runs rampant. But at the same time, my great-grandmother uh, walked the Trail of Tears, and it wasn't voluntary. You know, you have, as, as women, your cries aren't heard. As, and we know that as Black women, our cries aren't heard. We're the least protected uh, person on the planet, he, uh, being on the planet. So what more can we do as sisters, as building a sisters, uh, sisterhood, what more can we do to protect our sisters out there? Okay, thank you so much. And in the interest of time, I wanna respect everybody's time. We're supposed to go until 2.30. But if uh, Danielle, if you are available to continue for five or 10 more minutes, there is a question I forgot I wanted you guys to address, and that has to be the intersection of race. Um, Margina has uh, alluded to it earlier, but I did want to get that on record. I'm just gonna put it, probably edit it and put it up, up top, which is um, in your experience, what is the intersection of race when it comes to land? Um, and uh, I guess, let me see how to phrase this question. Um, what is the experience or how is race taken into account today when we look at um, issues around occupancy and land? Uh, and I'm speaking specifically, I'm kind of, um, I sound like I'm all over the place, I'm sorry. It, I just got really excited about it <laughs> because I recently heard this guy here in Dallas um, his, I can't think of his last name, but Jerry, he runs this, uh, it was funded by the Ford Foundation. And what he does is he goes around uh, Texas and he talks about the land that a institution currently sits on. And uh, his talk is called Stolen Lands Built by Stolen Hands. And so he's referring to the concept of land that was uh, taken from uh, the uh, original inhabitants of the United States, and then the audacity to bring in slaves <laughs> to build that land. And so just wanted you guys, well, uh, and Lucretia too, please jump in. Just your assessment of that, your opinion and your thoughts on it. And if, if you have time, if you don't, then I'm gonna call you later and then add <laughs> So I hate to say this, but am I free to go? Because I am like, yes. yeah. I really need to get out of here. Okay. All right. I'm going to go ahead and leave. Thank you so, so much. So Marjana, though, I'm going to call you so I can get your talk on it. Okay. Okay. And it'll be only like five minutes, but it'll be uh, later today, like around seven. Is that okay? 
Um, I, I won't be available tonight, but I probably should be available tomorrow. Unless you just want to give me your little, your blurb right now. What, what do I need to do? Just tell me what your thoughts on, on the concept of stolen land built by stolen hands. And that is that the lands was take, taken from indigenous people, but slaves were brought in to uh, develop that land. And you alluded to it earlier with the freedmen's, um, you know, how they brought them in. But I wanted to get your opinion on that concept now of actually going and speaking to people today in their communities, especially in black communities, where the land that's occupied in urban areas actually belongs to someone other than who currently um, manages it or owns it or you know, lives on it. But what is, your, what is your opinion about the intersection of race when we're talking about stolen land built by stolen hands? Um, I would probably say, you know, I work very closely with all sorts of communities um, through my past work and then the, the work I'm doing now. And I think where the power will come is when we when we all learn to, to work together, I think especially uh, Black and Native because of the fact that I think that those two groups are the ones probably taking the most advantage of you know, learning to work together and support each other in our initiatives. And like, you know, I, I, um, I definitely have a lot of passion about the, especially the legal field, the prison uh, high school or um, school to prison pipeline, the incarceration of black male uh, predominantly, you know, so I have so, so much passion about all of that, but it's all sort of intersects in that it, we have been taken advantage of. And so for us to figure out ways that we can work together to support, I, I've always said this, I said this when I was attending Haskell, some of your best advocates can be those that are not part of your group. If you learn together, because there's no, there's no, um, a personal, uh, you know, um, there's no personal increase when it's not something that that you've been oppressed by or something. Oh, it's not traumatic. It's not traumatic. Right, right. Um, so, you know, advocating for each other and trying to find those intersections, but that's definitely one there. I've seen some images that are very powerful to me is with the Native and the 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 black together as far as the land was stolen and then the you know the development of the land was on the backs of of the black you know so um you know i i, I know and i agree with what danielle said you know racism still exists and it's not exempt from many many groups i've seen it you know, throughout my lifetime, coming from all different areas, you know, we have a lot of work left there to do. There's Native people that are racist and, you know, um, don't live up to the teachings of our people, you know, about brotherhood and, and um, so, but learning how to work together to address these, I think is where the power is going to come into place. Thank you so much, Margina. I really appreciate you. Um, I, I look forward to doing more and I hope that we can collaborate and create that uh, podcast that you envision. 
Sounds good. Thank you, Kimmy, for this opportunity. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. Have a good day. Welcome. Bye, everybody. Y'all have care. Take care. Okay. You, you do the same. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, Danielle. I'm here. All right. So before you go, I actually wanted to ask you if you are aware of the Laguna massacre. Uh, is that what took place down in Georgia with the slaves decided they were going to commit suicide? Yes. yes, I am. Can you speak on that, please? Oh, I am a person that believes strongly in death before dishonor. And I... Woo, Jesus, I, I, wait, pause, wait. <laughs> what is, like, that kind of moved my spirit. I had a quickening in the spirit. What is that? Uh, I refuse to be in bondage. Mm. And, and, and I will not let, uh, if, if I had to go back, I would have probably been leading the pack with that. If we're not going to be willing to fight for our freedom and and we've already been brought here we probably would have died before we even got here uh if i would have been leading the charge and that's a topic of a different day of but hold on wait you know, wait a minute i just want to say something i don't know that you would have died i think when you have the the spirit of a warrior it's specifically why you're still here how did we get on the boat in the first place if we're going to go back and we're going to if we were to go back to that time period how did we get on the boat in the first place? So, I would have died being being snatched and chained uh, in the middle of that. And had I had the opportunity to even get free, uh, I probably would have would have died in the middle of that. So <clears throat> wait, Danielle, you raise a very interesting question, and that is, how did people get on the boat in the first place? They yeah. were tricked. They were tricked. They weren't always stolen and put in um, in, in bondage. They weren't it wasn't always the case. More often than not, they literally were just told in a different language. And so it was almost like that herd mentality that we, we have now, which is they perhaps heard someone speak to them and tell them something. And then the experience was different when they arrived. That, that's what my research is showing me. Yeah, like I actually um, am just shocked. 100% could be, you know, we're, we're, I'm going off of, of the mindset that I have now. You're absolutely right. You know, where it could have been, hey, we want to work with you. We want to bring you over. But I think- the Not even that, been, that there's an opportunity for you to have a better life. And I think that's part of what is happening now. And we need to think about, we'll ask that question. What does it mean to have a better life? And then to your point, if that better life is not what you told me it is, what right. am I willing and how am I willing to go about getting that which I deserve that and, part. and pursue exactly. that? Yeah, right. go ahead and, and speak to that. I'm sorry, I just want to get and, that in there. No, 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 you're, you're absolutely on the right track. It comes with common sense has been around, uh, honestly, since day one. You know, back before even this time, our people were, supposed to be rooted in in their own spirituality with their own way and that doesn't mean they were devoid of common sense it doesn't mean that they were not devoid of intuition you know that's that's been there since day one when you know something don't feel right and it let's say for instance that we were promised these this gift horse and we're like okay well uh, all right team 
I'm, I'm going to go over here with these white people uh, because they're promising a better life. Uh, and as soon as they decided that I needed to be at the bottom of the boat chained down, that probably would have been a defining factor that I have made a severe mistake at this point. So what, <laughs> am, I going to do? what am I going to do when I do get the opportunity to get free? If that means that I'm going to go and I'm going to jump off and, 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 and into the bottom of this ocean, before I go see what's out there, then so be it. If, if the fact that we're already chained down it is an indication of a problem to even begin starting with that. And if people are constantly going over there with these white people and not coming back, not writing, not we're not hearing good things or whatever, what do we keep getting on the boat with them for? Well, they did look like us, by the way. Even if, okay, and, and, and people talk. So if you know uh, uh, little, little Juju is not doing right down there and he knows what's happening to these people and yet and still they're still recruiting people to go abroad. And I say that, lose, use that term loosely, recruiting people to go abroad, but you ain't never seen them again. Maybe we need to take little Juju out and, and, and blow his head off because obviously this is something that's going awry or we need to hold him accountable for what is taking place. Disclaimer. Why are you going out people? Disclaimer, the opinions and uh, are those of our invited guests and not that of Texas Women's University. <laughs> End of disclaimer. I'm no, I'm just, just kidding. I, I'm just kidding. I'm totally I know, kidding. But, you're, but you're asking me. I, I would have I died and led the charge with that. We are not going to do this. There is, we're not going to. Before I let my daughter be raped again and again, before right. I let my son right. be raped again and again, right. before I'm going to get raped again and again, I'm going to take me and them on up out of here. And if anybody else wants to come again, we'll try again in a different lifetime, but we ain't going to make it happen. And we would have been going right up under that water, holding hands and singing right then and there. I wanted to ask you if you would mind sharing your experience running as a native woman in running for this position. You had alluded to, you know, the issue came up, but I, if you don't mind, could you share your personal experience and what it was like? Um, difficult. You are a sacrificial lamb. <laughs> what do you mean? You want, whether you want to be or not, because when you decide to run for office, that means you are putting yourself on front street and everything about you comes into question. You, whether it's how you look, whether it's your hair, whether it's your lipstick, your shoes, whether it's how you speak, whether it's your education, where you grew up, uh, all of that's called into question. And that's even before people ask you why you run it. You know, all of those things are, you allow yourself to be judged by people that don't know you. Before yeah, we they made the mistake. I, 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 when you said that, as soon as you said it, I said, oh man, we did her image wrong. That's fine. Um, the people, and but this is what I've learned in this lifetime being that this is my second time running. For the people that are, are with the same mindset as you, those are the people that will be your tribe. And everybody else is just going to do what they're going to do regardless whether it's you or somebody else. If people weren't going to vote for Trump, they were going to vote for everybody that looked and sounded just like him. No disregards. And for me, but I'm more qualified the tribal, than the man what, what's, holding what's okay? what, what was the specific um, tribal community? What was their specific 
the tribal community is like was like this. If, uh, I am, I have a relationship with Cherokee Nation, both the uh, the tribal leader as well as the Shawnee the the, the uh, Shawnee Nation uh, tribal leaders as well. For them, they were very honest with me. They were like, "We cannot come out and support you publicly because if this don't go the right way, we still need to work with this man that oh. you run against." Wow. And, and that's because he has the say in their funding. And I totally understand. What do you that mean like, by that? Because the, the congressman has the ability to, to help put weight on uh, IHS and put weight what is on, IHS? Uh, on the BIA. IHS is Indian Health Services and Bureau of Indian Affairs. They, mm-hmm. you being that they're the congressional representative from the state they have a say with the, with the federal government. If, if there is some funding, and I'll give you an instance, the Shawnee Nation, they, uh, they do surveys, they do census just like everybody else does the census. So if people are not participating in the census, then they, don't, they can't do the accurate count. So when the census got back to DC, they only, had, only showed that they had 90,000 people when it's well over 200,000 people. So they only sent enough money to uh, to the Shawnee Nation, especially during COVID, that would be sufficient for 90,000 people. And it wasn't enough money to help people pay their bills. It wasn't enough money to, to help people with uh, education and things like that, that kind of came out of kind came out of COVID or to help. So what they had to do uh, the Shawnee tribal leader, he had to go back to Mullen and was like, hey, I, yes, our people didn't take the, uh, they didn't take the census, but we need more money than this because we've already depleted these funds. Trying Wait, to did you just them. tell me why they didn't participate in the census? No, not. people are going to participate or not participate for whatever their own reasons are. You know what I mean? And then you have people that live outside of the reservation, like me. I'm what's called at large. I don't live on the reservation. I live in Oklahoma, but I'm not in the 14 county tribal district of the the Cherokee Nation. So the people that live within that 14 county district, they take priority over the rest of us that are at large. And what does that community look like? Because, you know, I don't want to be racist and colonial in my imagination. But is it like Frisco, like our neighborhood? Is it a regular neighborhood or is there something different it about it? Yeah, it, it can be. If they live in the 14, the people that live in the 14 uh, county district, and I'll speak this to, to Cherokee Nation, uh, they have regular houses, regular neighborhoods. Some of their houses are you know, bought and paid for through private contractors, DR Horton, Leonard, whatever they are, they're regular houses. Some of them, uh, they have what's called self-help homes where the government uh, built them. And basically they went in on a partnership so that they could afford this house. So is, so, that, like our, is that like our section eight? No, this is their home. They own this home where they have maybe put $3,000 into this home and they agree to keep it and always keep, always kind of maintain it and keep it up. And the government has paid for the rest of that home. Now, could I move to that community? Like I could move anywhere in Texas, but could I specifically move into that district? Do you have a, a citizenship card? 
Wow. Stop lying. Uh, no, we have cards. We have tribal cards that tell you uh, which are roll number. I'm sure that that word comes uh-huh. up. We have roll numbers. They know, uh, like my family, they know what my roll number is. They know that I'm a citizen of the Cherokee Nation, which was the first thing that I did when I decided to run so that people didn't think I was creeping. So, so this is like a passport? Yeah. Our passport. So like, and yeah, healthcare, education, all of that. Yeah. More like a passbook. You know what I mean? Not not a passport, yeah. more of a passbook. Yeah, it, it is. It is a card. It's like being in the military where this card uh gets you into the door for these things. Like it, if I never wanted private health insurance for the rest of my life, I don't have to have it. I just have to go to Oklahoma to get my care. So you what know? does the border look like? Is it a gated community? Do you have to no, like is it like going no, into Canada? No. You are confusing the reservation with the, with the county. The people that live on the reservation, their houses, and I'll send you photos. Some of them are small houses. It depends. Some of them are like just tiny houses. They look like tiny houses. Some of some of them are um, like uh, section looks like section eight apartments mm-hmm. with their townhouses. Uh, some of them are 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 trailers or like mobile homes. So it just depends on what town that is and how they wanted to set up their particular community. You okay. can and so own. that's residential housing. Then is there yeah. like a town, like how, what does the police look like? Do they have their own police cars? And yes, yes they have tribal police. What? Yes. Yeah, okay. the <laughs> tribal police uh, polices that particular area, that particular section, if they live on the reservation, if they do not live on the reservation itself, and they live, let's say, just yeah, out in the regular apartment, then that city police is in charge of them. It's so just like, in, what about in, okay, so in the bay. county, in the county, what is the police, or what is the protective entity there? Just a uh, regular city police. Or, um, if you want to think about this. I lost you. Danielle? Yeah, I mean, it's okay. like living on base and living off base. Ah, perfect. That's a great analogy. That, that means it all home. Yes. Yep. yep. Except there's no MPs at the front and you got to show your military ID to get on base. No, no not at all. Do you think it would be helpful to have that type of protection? Because then they would know, because you know, it's a whole different thing when you step on base, you rape somebody on base, then you got to deal with military law. Well, yeah, they have to deal with tribal police. So it's still, and it depends uh, if, if my husband and I are both tribal members living in on the reservation and let's say he assaults me, then I call the tribal police or I call 911. They ask for my address. They obviously see that's the reservation. The tribal police comes to my home and he's detained or whatever, or I'm detained, depending on who doing what, you know, they're detained and you're taken to the tribal station and you're prosecuted under a tribal law. Now, things get fuzzy where let's say my husband is not Native American. Let's say he's black or he's white. So he can, and, but he's staying on the reservation with me, but he's non-tribal person. So, okay, that means he needs to be picked up by the tribal police 
transported over to the regular city since he's non-tribal and he's detained and he has to deal with state law from there. Okay, so that brings me, that, that provides- The civilian. The, that provides the understanding that I needed to understand on why the state refused to prosecute 98% of the cases that are brought uh, for domestic violence, forcible sex, and rape. And well, also why when they report missing people, it goes unaddressed by, is it the DA? Like in, in, yeah, in your jurisdiction, what, what is, okay. So though that's from the Indian law resource, but in your jurisdiction, in Oklahoma, what, what's really happening around this uh, when, you, when, you, when you get off tribal land and, and you get into the town, and I'll use my hometown as an example, uh, the white people are running the sheriff's department. The white people are in charge of the police mm. department. And most of the time, they're the main ones that's, that's a, a, a part of the missing and murdered people. So when you get into things like that- Are you talking uh, about police corruption? Uh, yeah. We're talking about, so it has to be some corruption going coming somewhere um, because obviously- It always follows. Right, they're not being investigated. They're not being looked at, things are not, you know, taking place. If I, if I go and I file a missing persons report for my daughter or my mom files a missing persons report, for me, one of the first things they're gonna look at is, you know, did she have a drug problem? Uh, where, where, you know, where was she at? You know, who was she hanging around? And, and all of those things come into play. Oh, well, maybe she left on her own. You know, who would have kidnapped her? So you have the people that are not real police people when we talk about that. They were somebody's uncle works at the law, works at the police force and he got his nephew on now. He didn't did a ride along for two weeks and now he's, he's, a, he's a marshal, he's a law person. So when we talk about training and things of that nature, that also plays a part as to how crimes are getting solved. Just the other day uh, in my hometown, the ambulance was called, and I'm sure you guys have read about this. The ambulance was called, a man was having a heart attack in his home. The ambulance show up to this man's home, go inside trying to save this man's life. Somebody stole the ambulance while it was parked outside this person's home. So when they go to roll the man out on the gurney to take him, because he lived in the rural part of the town, to go take him to the hospital, their ambulance was gone. They then had to call a family member to come pick this man up to try to transport him to the hospital, and he died en route to the hospital. They cannot find who stole the ambulance. They ditched the ambulance, left it on the side of the road, but now they've had to call in for the FBI to come help them fingerprint the van and help them solve the mystery of who stole the ambulance. Because it's now a murder. It should be. Has it been classified that way yet? No, not, not yet because they can't find the individual that, that stole it. And then even in this, this is check this part out. It'll depend on who stole it. If it was a Native American person that stole this van, now it comes down to, is he going to be prosecuted by the federal government, uh, which has jurisdiction over the tribes? Or if he's a white person, which he probably is, is he's going to be tried by the state? 
but never comes wow. into question will he be tried by the by the by the nation by the tribe if he is a native american he will be the the tribe is not going to try him the federal government the supreme court of oklahoma will try him that makes no sense to me well okay and the reason why it doesn't make sense is because the way that the court system is set up I mean, you you also, okay, so one thing is you also ran own. for judge of Collin yeah. County. So can you speak to the comparison of how our our judicial system is set up? Because you know, you can run for and talk about your what what, what you ran for. I don't want to, you know, misspeak. And the equivalent and why where is that an equivalent of this judicial system that is set up for the nation well texas is a whole, uh, texas is a whole different animal you know texas is is they don't have any reservations or anything so they're just city state and you know municipality and with that like i have my home in fate so if I commit a crime in fate, then I'm well, going to- What position did you run for? I ran for Collin County Judge, which is equivalent to uh, Judge, what's his name in of Dallas? Uh, God, I just went bang. He's, he's like the mayor of the county, Judge Clay Jenkins. Clay Jenkins. Right. You don't have any particular uh, legislative judicial power. Mainly it, it's administrative power that, that you have, but- you are but, it's a, but you are a judge. So what what administrative power do you have over? What well, crime? Is it crime? You can just weigh in your opinion. But you are a seated judge with a black robe in a just in a judge. No, not for county commissioner. You in charge of the uh, being the tiebreaker for the commissioners. No. So you ran for judge, though, Collin County judge. Yes, that not not a sitting bench judge, a county commissioner judge, what Chris Hill does. Oh, okay. See, this is important for us to understand how the judicial system is set up and who, what is the role when we call someone a judge? Because I'm thinking that it's a lawyer and mm -hmm. you know, you you have a law degree and you are responsible for adjudicating local um, infringements against some type of law or rule that we have. You can do that as a justice of the peace. You don't have to have a law degree and you have justices of the peace right now sitting in Collin County that don't have a law degree at all. They're just paralegals making decisions for people's lives. Now, do, is that equivalent on the reservation or in the county? Like, and I say county because okay let me switch states to okay. Oklahoma uh what Oklahoma has and it depends on the county because different um tribes belong and run the different counties so wow. uh we're, yeah so it, it it's a lot of different components that come with that is is the tribal jurisdiction that that you're in what county matters, it, it matters. So with that, when you have, let's say Ch Cherokee County, which is under the Cherokee nation. So let's say if a crime is committed there, again, did it happen on a reservation? Did it happen in town? Are you Native American? Or are you just a regular person? 
all of those things play a part depending on where you're tried at. Yes, and I'm, I'm gonna look on, I, I began my research from the Tribal Clearinghouse. It's a project of the Tribal Law and Policy Institute. And so it's so confusing to me because it seems like it's not the tribes themselves determining how they want to govern and you know, adjudicate safety and protection in their own land. They work with the state and local governments to to have peace, and uh, it's a it's kind of an agreement that that you have. You know what I mean? So if if I know that we we're in this county, we have to coexist together. We have to work together when crimes are committed. They have to work together for everything. They got to work with the governor. They have to work with everybody. So it's always a constant give and take. As, as to what's taking place. It's always agreements and, and compromises that are constantly being made. Wow. And at the heart of that, the, the, the tribes, they always wanna do their best to make sure they're, they're maintaining their sovereignty and not giving too much of their power away. Blown away. Lucretia, do you have anything that you wanted to ask or say or anything? I really am just blown away by all of this. It's a lot. I, I just, um, I'm thinking about, I don't know, what if we just got together? <laughs> it's too much money involved, that ain't gonna happen. What do you mean by that? Okay, so what you mean is too much money involved, from who? People are, white, white people are not giving away their power. They, they don't want kumbaya. They don't want, oh, the old money do not want a, a peaceable agreement. They're not giving up their power. They're not giving up their place in, in, in having a say. They're not giving up everything their ancestors stole. They're not doing that. Otherwise, it wouldn't, we wouldn't constantly be going back and forth, back and forth over the different things. These men are not giving up their power. So it's not going to be where we're going to get along. It's going to be, I will do this if you will do this. It's always a power struggle going on um, with Oklahoma. And I'm going to have to drop off this call because I need to finish up my day job here. But um, even with the, with the tribes, they can give millions of dollars a year to Oklahoma for education, for roads, for things really Oklahoma should be taking care of themselves and getting still. Yeah, they make hand over fist with the casinos, they do. But if I already have told you I am building you a road and I'm doing this and I'm even helping out your people because you don't have enough hospitals. We are even allowing some of your people that don't have a car to be seen at our hospitals because you can't support them. You still want me to give you more money outside of what I agreed when I'm doing all this extra. I done bought you new fire trucks. I done, I, I done replaced your police cars. I done did this, but you want more money. You still want to shake me down. So it's always power struggles going back and forth with that, always. Okay, hold on, I'm stopping the recording. So, okay, I just wanna, I wanna stop the recording.